Welcome back, everyone, to Palm Peeps. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, make sure to rate and review us five stars wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And certainly check out our website for any old content. Uh, we're back today with another episode, and we are extremely excited for a roundtable episode with some really astounding experts in the field. But before we introduce them, Monty, how are you? Hey, Ferb, doing well. And hello again to all of our listeners. I'm doing great today, and I've really been looking forward to today's episode for some time now. Today, we're going to be discussing post-ICU syndrome, which is an extremely important topic for all pulmonary and critical care providers because of how much it affects our patients. Yeah, absolutely. And our panel today includes two guests who are experts in the field and really truly pioneers in describing post-ICU syndrome, uh, or PICS. They have pushed all of us to think more about this topic and led the way in how to study and understand it. Just before we meet them, quick reminder that this podcast is HIPAA compliant, no patient-specific details will be shared, and our viewpoints are all our own and don't reflect the opinions or practices of our respective employers. Great. Thanks, Murph. And so excited to introduce our first guest today. We're going to be starting with Dr. Del Almeida. Del is a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, where he is also the medical director of the Critical Care Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Program, as well as the director of the Outcomes After Critical Illness and Surgery Group. He is the author of hundreds of publications focusing on post-ICU outcomes and numerous research grants from the NIH, as well as other organizations and foundations. Dell's a true legend in the field, and it's a privilege to have you on today, Dell. Welcome to Cold Peeps. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. And next, we have Wes Ely. Wes is the Grant W. Little Chair in Medicine and a Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's also the Associate Director of Aging Research at the VA Tennessee Valley Geriatric Research and Educational Clinical Center and the Co-Director of the Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center. He's an equally paramount figure in the field with multiple publications and grants and has also recently published a new book called Every Deep Drawn Breath about his and his patients' experiences in the ICU and with the ramifications of critical illness. And unbelievably, all the net proceeds from that book are going to the CIBS Center Endowment for Survivorship. So certainly check it out and get a copy today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Dave and Monty. I appreciate being here. And it's true. First off, Dale Needham is in the book, of course, because I had to put all the pioneers in the field. So Dale is featured very prominently in every deep drawn breath. And every penny from that book does go back to patients and survivors. So it's a mission to try and help them pick up the pieces of their life. And I uh, appreciate you inviting me to be on today. Thank you so much, Wes and Del. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. And I think we'd like to go ahead and get started. And we know that post-ICU syndrome is a huge topic. And certainly one episode is not enough to cover everything that we want to. But we'd like to give our listeners a basic introduction so they can recognize it and try to help patients as much as possible on a day-to-day -day basis. So Dell, I wanted to go to you first and ask, how would you define PICS for those of us listening today? Sure. So post-intensive care syndrome was created from an international multidisciplinary stakeholder conference uh, organized by the Society of Critical Care Medicine more than a decade ago. And, and we picked a very practical definition. It's new or worsening impairments in physical, cognitive, and or mental health status that arise after critical illness and persist beyond the acute care hospitalization. Uh, importantly, this was not created to be a scientific term or something to be specifically measured. We created this because so many ICU survivors were leaving the hospital and them 
their families, ICU clinicians, and primary care clinicians had no idea that all of the problems they were facing with physical, cognitive, mental health issues were related to their ICU stays. So we really created it to raise awareness um, and then to prompt for outpatient screening and to prompt for, for research into specific aspects of post-intensive care syndrome. Thank you so much, Dell. And um, I can't believe it's only, you know, been less than 10 years since that the definition has been widely used. But you mentioned some screening that can be done in the outpatient setting. And Dell, do you use any specific tools to assess patients' cognitive, psychiatric, or physical functioning after critical illness that learners may want to be more aware of? Sure. So first of all, creating the term PICS then really helped people think about what should we actually be doing, whether it's a primary care practice or a post-ICU follow-up clinic. So there, there are some, some recommendations. So for example, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, many years after PICS was defined, did have an international meeting that specifically talked about what screening instruments could be considered. And I'm happy to give you the citation information to share with all the, the readers for that. Um, and importantly, a lot of that, that sort of decision-making was based on a, a large uh, NIH national infrastructure grant that we had to try to figure out how we should measure this for research purposes. And then th that helped morph into what we should do for clinical reasons. So there are specific instruments, but I think we need to also recognize what's actually going to be feasible, particularly in the clinical practice setting. In a research setting, we do want everybody to be measuring things whenever possible in the same way. And that's why we create it with NIH funding this core outcome measurement set. I'm happy to go, kind of go into the details of that, but I think that, you know, for example, some of the instruments in the core outcome set are instruments that need to be licensed, and that may or may not be feasible in a clinical practice setting. It may or may not be feasible to build into your electronic medical record system because of licensing issues. So I think it's really important to recognize uh, what kind of things are part of post-intensive care syndrome, like anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, cognitive impairment, muscle weakness, physical impairments, and think about those things rather than sort of fixating on, I have to use a specific instrument and only that instrument, particularly for, for clinical. For research, we do want people to fixate on, on specific instruments. Wow, that, that's like a really, I really love that point, Dell. And it's so, in some ways, refreshing. I feel like so many times we define things in medicine, it's based on studying it in the research context, and then the clinical considerations come later. It's really cool that this syndrome was sort of defined by outcomes that you were seeing with patients, a clinical entity that we knew we had to address, and then the research tools have been, you know, uh, developed later. So sort of just thinking about those big domains. I really like that. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, Del, you bring up a good point, exactly what's feasible, and that may differ for um, every clinician at different institutions. Uh, but we'll make sure to put some of the citations that you mentioned um, just to, to have for those listening when we release the episode so they can see what is available. Um, and I think so far we've covered, you know, what um, exactly PICS is. I know it's a very broad definition. Um, so we want to make sure to identify any patients who may be suffering from PICS and Wes, I wanted to ask you, does PICS apply to any patient who is in the ICU for any reason? Are there any other exclusions we should be thinking about? Sure. Just a few uh, points, by the way. Uh, you know, a lot of our studies of post-intensive care syndrome or PICS, I call them clinicians' studies. And to kind of build on what Dale was saying earlier, clinician studies to me are those that apply directly to people at the bedside 
and you can use them tomorrow to do a better job of both managing your patients to help prevent ticks, but also to identify this syndrome, which is very, very disabling for people. And it's, it's one thing to talk about how do you measure it, but another just to face the reality, the humanness of what this means to patients and their families, which is essentially, imagine just somebody coming all the way through critical care. And, and as you asked me, you know, is, is anybody on the table to get this? Absolutely. Every ICU patient is on the table to get this problem, no matter how young you are, no matter how well you were prior to getting critically ill, because anybody can leave having acquired the neck down problems of muscle and nerve, you know, disability and the neck up problems of really essentially an acquired dementia and then mental health problems, as were mentioned before, depression and PTSD. And this constellation of things causes people to not be able to go back to their job, back to their previous role in their family of being a matriarch and patriarch of their family. And it makes them embarrassed at parties when they miss people's names, when they can't recall what happened to them in the ICU and people ask them questions or they, they can't explain it. So it's a very personal set of injuries that occur to people and it's not what they got in the ICU for. So as an ICU doctor, I think, well, the patient came with a cholecystectomy, ATN, a cirrhosis, but they leave with this whole new set of problems. And that's really where we want to focus our attention today to help our listeners understand. Thank you so much for that overview. That's, uh, you know, really helpful to consider our patients. And I do think that, you know, I think a lot of people are unaware of these problems or certainly have been in the past. And some of the awareness is increasing, you know, with COVID-19. But we know it's been a long, important issue even before that. Was there like that you said that anybody's at risk for this who's coming into the ICU, even a young patient? But I'm curious if you have an idea of like the exact scope, you know, is there an estimate of how many people struggle with this? Does everybody struggle with some amount of it? I know it's a tough question, but curious about the, uh, the impact it has in our real life practice for our patients. Sure, absolutely. I think if you did not divide it up into types of patients, you might say that about a half of people after a real critical care ICU stay, meaning not, you know, post-op for one or two days, but like came in with a need for organ replacement, organ support, uh, like a ventilator or dialysis, anybody with a, with a real serious ICU stay has about a 50% chance of leaving with some form of new injury. But if you divide it up by patient type, I think it would be on the low end, you know, people who are relatively young and healthy, one in four, uh, maybe one in five would end up with some form of months later ongoing disability that would be, that would factor into being called post-intensive care syndrome. On the low end, on the high end, take your elderly patients who have comorbidities and they're in the ICU for five to 10 days, you know, but they're maybe 70, 80 years old and already had some pre-existing illnesses. Those people have probably two-thirds to three-fourths of those patients are going to leave with post-intensive care syndrome. Again, if they were, had what I call a, you know, a real serious ICU stay where they were on some form of organ support. So as low as one in five, as high as 80%. Uh, depending on the patient type. That's great. A great estimate for everybody. And we're going to talk in just a minute about some of the risk factors and things we can think about for our patients who are coming in. I am curious, you know, Dale mentioned how this was initially sort of described in a critical care conference. I would just love to hear a little bit more from you about the history of post-ICU syndrome, you know, how during your practice, the understanding of it has evolved, how it was sort of first recognized as a problem. Uh, I would just love to hear your insights. Sure. Uh, let's take it back to the patient level. 
when I was an intern in 1990, so I'm very old, I'm 58, I had a woman named Teresa Martin, and she's featured uh, in Every Deep Drawn Breath. Her story is quite striking, and this serves as a good example. Came in with a tricyclic overdose, aspirated, had ARDS. I was her intern taking care of her, inverse ratio ventilation, a lot of paralysis, a lot of deep sedation. Ended up with multiple chest tubes because we were not practicing low tidal volume ventilation. This was pre-ARDSnet. And at the end of her stay, I thought, wow, I'm an amazing new ICU doctor. I'm at, I'm at a major medical center, and we saved her life. So, uh, Teresa, Miss Martin, come back and see me in two months. And she came back in the clinic, and this is you know, a really moving thing for me to kind of recount because I felt so much guilt and shame. Came in the clinic, wheeled in in a wheelchair. This one was 25 years old-ish. Wheeled in in a wheelchair, unable to walk, looked like a 45, 50-year-old woman. And her mother just sat there and said, what is going on? My daughter can't go back to work. She's not the same person anymore. We got x-rays. She had calcifications in her joints. It was, it was devastating to me. And I had no idea what was going on. So this is 20 years before PICS was described, right? But I started to see this in my clinic. And so because of that, when I got to Vanderbilt, I started seeing patients back in my clinic after the ICU experience and kind of when they were sick in the ICU, I would have them come back and see me instead of their primary care doctor. And I started putting together, wow, these people aren't the same. They're, they, they, they're losing their job. They can't engage with their families. And they're telling me that something is really radically wrong with them. Plus, they can't sleep at night because they're so afraid to go to sleep. And that's when I started understanding, wow, delirium that they had then is scaring them now. They can't think well. They have muscle and nerve disease. And so in the early 2000s, we started to piece together, whoa, this is a, a syndrome of a lot of different problems that these ICU patients are experiencing. And it took us about a decade, as Dale said, to kind of put a name to it. But we know now, looking back, that for 30 years prior to the naming of PICS, we were doing a lot of things in the ICU in the name of benevolence to try and protect them from memory and protect them from uh, you know, experiencing suffering that we're actually creating suffering and creating harm. And so I'll just leave you with that notion that we were trying our best and we did it in the name of love and, and hope for their recovery, but we were injuring them. And so it really took us to restructuring critical care to try and prevent this sort of iatrogenic injury. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. And I do think it's so powerful that, you know, this important clinical entity was really come upon by cl clinicians like both yourselves just from listening to patients after everything that's happened, you know, some, a piece that is so core to taking care of people, but of course doesn't always happen. Uh, Dale, I wanted to turn to you now that we have recognized the syndrome and the importance of it, certainly in the ICU and in all medicine, we like to have trials and evidence to guide us as we move forward. And I'm curious if you think there are metrics that we should be studying in addition to the standard ICU metrics we always look at, mortality, ventilator-free days, things like that, that we should be add so we can sort of capture picks uh, for patients when we're thinking about therapies that happen within the ICU? That's a great question. We would love data. We would love data if it was readily available, easy, cheap, and reliable, but I think we're going to find a, a big challenge, right? As people say, it's easy to count dead bodies, but it's much harder to count what patient's function is like. You, 
you know, uh, it, it's going to get at more complex questions and we're going to need to be able to access patients after they've left the hospital. And I think few health systems are prepared to routinely contact every single ICU survivor and, and do sort of a battery of surveys with them. You, you can't just say, stop by and, and give us a vial of blood. It's not going to be that simple. So I think metrics really will be, be kind of tough to have on a large scale basis, like we do when it comes to ICU and hospital length of stay and, and, and mortality, because these are more complex phenomenon. Um, so I do, I do think it's going to be really tough. I think that some things that, that people focus on are things like readmission, um, and, and that is a, a, a sliver of post-intensive care syndrome in that, that sometimes the readmissions might be avoidable and sometimes they're because of ICU-acquired issues, but I think that isn't going to tell the story. There's going to be lots of people who never get readmitted but go home with severe muscle weakness or post-traumatic stress disorder or cognitive impairment. Um, so I think it's going to be tough and I'm not sure that we've got all the, the answers on, on how we need to do that, but I do think that for hospitals that have ICU follow-up clinics, I do think that having standardized evaluations and developing metrics and looking at scores will be important, but there's going to be a large swath of patients. We know this from the existing studies that are often so overwhelmed that they can't even access the post-ICU follow-up services just because they're struggling with so many other things at the same time. So, so there is a selection bias for who actually gets into an ICU follow-up clinic as well. Hmm. Well, that's a really important consideration, the selection bias, if we can even actually make it there and has those type of access and services. Yeah, totally agreed. I think, uh, Wes, as you, as you alluded to, I think you were kind of starting your own post-ICU clinic, you know, um, as you mentioned, 30 to 40 years ago, which I think is definitely important right now, I know, in the current era that we are within medicine. And YC told us about how many people are uh, can be affected by PICS. So you said as low as 20%, but as high as 80%. And if there's anything um, that we're learning about IC medicine these days, it seems that precision and patient-specific considerations are so important. And I wanted to ask you, Wes, are there any patients that you think are at higher risk for PICS coming into an ICU? And if so, are there standardized ways to identify them? That's a really great question, Monty. I think uh, I'll answer with a twofold answer. First of all, thinking of patients pre-ICU situation, if they had any cognitive problems coming in, think of their think of their brain as a totem pole, and if they're at the very top of their cognitive function, totem pole wise, they are less at risk. But if they have any pre-existing cognitive issues or mental health issues, I think that the neck up components of PICS, which are the mental health PTSD, depression, and the cognition, the acquired dementia, become very high risk for such people. Um, that, that is something that they bring into the ICU is that added risk, which hopefully makes kind of my shackles go up about, uh-oh, I need to be super cautious with this person about making sure they don't get over-sedated, make sure they get mobilization as early as possible. Because we do know that delirium duration is a predictor of these problems. We showed in our 2013 brain ICU study that cognitive impairment on the, on the order of dementia looking like a Alzheimer's disease or, or TBI is very real after the ICU and that delirium duration is one of the best predictors. And Dale and Bill Schweikert are two investigators who have helped us the most to realize that one of the best things that we can do is get people mobilized early. So if we think of a high-risk person, we wanna get them out of the bed 
less sedation and moving as quickly as possible. And then the last thing, of course, is if there's somebody high risk, we want to get their family to reorient them all the time because family helps reduce delirium as well in some early studies done in Brazil. But the second thing I want to say is that anybody, who do I send to my post-ICU clinic? And it's run by Carla Steven here and Jim Jackson at Vanderbilt. They have a wonderful post-ICU clinic. I want to give them credit where credit's due. They've really built this thing beautifully. Anybody in the ICU who has more than one day of delirium or who is on a ventilator or in shock, those are my big three things. If you're in shock, on a vent, or you have more than one day of delirium, you automatically, boom, right off the bat, you're high risk for post-intensive care syndrome. So I try to make sure all those patients are candidates and we offer them a visit in the post-ICU clinic or more than one visit, depending on what they what's right for them. Thanks so much, Wes. So I, I think from that, I took um, definitely the delirium duration, um, shock and being on the ventilator as uh, potential risk factors for certain patients. Um, and Dell, I wanted to see if you had anything to add um, from your perspective, you know, once a patient's in the ICU, are there other parts of their ICU course that you think make PICS more or less likely? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to build on what Wes has said, the approach that we take to sedation, if we're going to sedate our patients and immobilize them, then we're going to condemn them to having major problems after their ICU stay. We need to aim for our patients to be awake, alert, and moving, interacting with us as clinicians, interacting with their families, interacting with our whole team of, of, of rehab people, OTs, PTs, speech-language pathologists, psychologists. These are all people that need to be on our team uh, and having our patients awake and moving. So that, that's tremendously important. I also want to give a tip that I think many people overlook. We as ICU doctors always think that the oldest, the frailest, the sickest patients are going to have the worst outcomes, but there is just a tremendous amount of information saying that once you're sick enough to get into the ICU, your severity of illness beyond that is not associated with mental health problems after the ICU. So it doesn't matter whether your Apache score is 20 or 20, your Apache 2 score is 20 or 29, um, doesn't matter if you've got ARDS or not ARDS, uh, the risks of anxiety, depression, and PTSD are independent of your severity of illness. So we cannot just be sifting the sickest patients often saying they're the ones that we should follow up. When it comes to anxiety, depression, PTSD, study after study show us that it's not dependent on your, your, your severity of illness. We need to think, and, and it's not dependent on your age. Young people can, can have these problems. We need to be uh, triggering to patients that have pre-existing um, mental health challenges, as Wes has said, and then also patients that are telling us that they've got memories of frightening experiences in the ICU. And those frightening experiences are often their delirium. They think that we've intentionally been trying to harm them because they've had hallucinations and delusions during their delirium. And if those frightening memories they're telling us about, those should be sending off red flags, no matter their severity of illness or their age, that they're at risk of having mental health problems after the ICU. And uh, we should be thinking about that as an important risk factor. Oh, yeah. Can I just add to that? That is uh, Two quick delirium stories come to my mind. And both these patients are in every deep drawn breath. But this one guy was in the ICU with pancreatitis. And he was looking at his monitor and his wife kept seeing him look at the monitor. She kept telling him, oh, honey, you're fine. Your, 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 your vital signs look good. But what he was seeing the whole time and she didn't know it 
was over the cardiac monitor, he saw a huge black Jaguar. <laughs> and this black Jaguar, he said to me when I interviewed, and I recorded all these people and transcribed their recordings. So these are all direct quotes. He said, there's an apex predator in the corner of this room. Are we going to pretend like it's not there and about to rip us apart? And then the day went on and nobody paid any attention to it. And then he recounted back to me. He said, I'm not the crazy here. That's exactly what he said. I'm not the crazy here. He, that was as real to him as real can be. Another patient of mine who had sepsis in the ICU was asked every night while the nurse did not know this. So think of yourself in the ICU with your patient and they're thinking this is happening. Asked every night to play a game show where three people are in front of him. They have burlap sacks on their heads and he's asked to shoot one of the three people and he switches the person every night because each time he did it, they pulled the burlap bag off the person he killed and it was his daughter. 10 years later, he still cannot sleep. He is so messed up over these dreams. And they all say that these dreams are not dreams to them. They are real. They're more real than their own life. And so that sort of thing leaves people very injured. They have a lot of scarring. And we, that's why we need these post-ICU clinics like Dale has pioneered and Carla Steven and others, because they need to go through therapy and they need to go through cognitive rehabilitation to get the neurons and the neuroplasticity engaged to build these connections back to help them rebuild the, the, their life and, and create a path forward of hope. And importantly, this needs to start in the ICU. If we're not having our patients sedated, then they will recognize that we're not there harming them because they're not delirious, they're not sedated, they're alert and interactive with us, and their families can reassure them, nurses can reassure them, doctors. We have a rehabilitation psychologist who exclusively works in our ICU and focuses on these issues and helps patients through that journey when they're awake and can help reorient them or help early on help them with some of these frightening memories if they were delirious earlier and make sense of it. So these are really important things that we need to be thinking about every day in the ICU and starting early. Yeah, I mean, these are incredibly powerful stories that you guys have both talked about, and, and I can't imagine how traumatizing for patients that is. And you both mentioned how important in ICU care and these prevention techniques are. And I, I want to even follow up on it because I think it's such an important point. You know, you've mentioned a couple specifics, early mobilization, our sedation practices. I'd like to delve a little bit deeper about specific things we as providers should be doing in the ICU to try to prevent post-ICU syndrome later. So maybe Wes, we can start with you with some things you take. And then Dale, I would love to hear some more specifics about what we can do to adjust our sedation practices. Cause you know, I, you know, patients are agitated, we're keeping them on the ventilator, but what should we be mindful of and practices we can do uh, to be better provider? Give the overview and let Dale talk about the specifics. I want the listener to know that this is not soft science. This is hardcore, well, well described, robust methodology whereby around 2001, 2002, we, since that time, we've got 35 to 40 New England Journal, JAMA, and Lancet papers describing the better way to do things than the old way. If the old way was deeply sedate and immobilized, the new way is cut those drugs off every day with a spontaneous awakening trial, step A. Step B, do a spontaneous breathing trial, then try and get that person off the ventilator. The ABC... DEF bundle came from these 35 to 40 New England Journal Lancet JAMA papers. And that A2F bundle, I abbreviated A2F, letter, letter A, number two, letter F. The A2F bundle is the way that the Society of Critical Care Medicine says 
to safely approach patient care. Why? Because we have this foundation of these RCTs, and then on top of that, we have cohort studies with over 30,000 patients who we, in whom we have shown that the more you comply with this bundle, and we have data to show going from 10 to 20 to 50 to 80% compliance, the higher you go up that compliance, you have a dose response whereby you have a reduction in death, reduction in length of stay, less ICU bounce backs, less nursing home transfers, less delirium and coma. So all of these things should be in our minds as we're running an ICU. How do I safely run an ICU on a global scale, but also on an individual patient level? The better I do this, the more recovery my patient's going to have and the better chances they will have to live and to live well with less long-term disability. So I'd love it if Dale could perhaps build on that. Sure. And, and how, what are the guidelines? How do we do this? The Society of Critical Care Medicine has the latest version of their clinical practice guidelines, the PADIS guidelines, P-A-D-I-S, pain, agitation, delirium, immobility, and sleep. All five of those things are in the same clinical practice guideline. It's because the head bone is connected to the body bone. Every one of these things is interrelated, and that's why we need to think about them together as a bundle of care like the ADF bundle. So, you know, can we avoid any infusion of a sedative during the entire ICU stay, even if patients have an endotracheal tube? We need to think about analgesia through multimodal approaches to, to pain management, but if we can manage pain, a large proportion of our patients are not going to need any infusion of any sedative. That's what daily care is like in, in our medical intensive care unit for, for many years now. Many, many patients don't need uh, any infusion of a sedative medication despite having in a tracheal tube. And then when they're awake, then nurses can begin to mobilize patients. Patients will not lose the ability to walk if you haven't kept them sedated and bed bound. That patient that was walking two days prior, they can walk even though they've got an endotracheal tube. Obviously, it requires skilled people and human resources to, to have the, the personnel to do that, but, but the patient doesn't magically lose the ability to walk because they came into the ICU. They lose the ability to walk because we sedate them and, and enforce them to have bed rest and, and their muscles uh, shrink around, uh, around them. So, so it, it's really those approaches and, for example, the PADIS guidelines that help us. And there's been lots more data since the PADIS guidelines come out that provide further support for non-pharmacologic approaches to, to managing patients, uh, preventing and treating patients' delirium in the ICU. Common sense things about how all of our family would want to care for us if we were in the ICU. They'd want to spend time with us. They'd want to reassure and comfort us. They'd want to continually reorient us. They'd want to make sure if we had glasses and hearing aids that we had those things. Um, those are the kind of things that are part of non-pharmacologic bundles. Can I add, uh, this is right along the same lines, but during COVID, this all fell down. We were getting 60 to 80% compliance with the bundle. We have data from international surveys showing that during COVID, we measured it at 10 to 20% compliance. Hmm. People behind the glass, no PPE, that, the fear of the virus, and then the absence of family. Absence of family was anti-medicine. I hope I never see that again in the ICU. It was so cruel and unusual for us to do that to patients. I, I know why we did it, but let's not ever return to that. It is completely unhealing. 
and the family are part of the healing plan. They're not a luxury. Secondly, it is so critical that we realize that many, many new practitioners in our ICUs, nurses, interns, doctors, they train during COVID and they don't know the pre-COVID things that we worked on for 10 years. So we've got to dig back out of what COVID wrought and rebuild this more humanistic way to take care of each other. And I like to say that my, my working definition of mercy is my willingness to dive in to the chaos of another person's life and provide lifting and healing. And what I did wrong for an, as an intensivist for many years, and I carried a lot of shame about this, and I, I talk about it in, in every deep down breath, is that I was diving into their chaos by sedating them and immobilizing them, but I wasn't providing lifting and healing. So it was a false mercy, but I don't want to live that way anymore as a doctor. I want to be providing true mercy where I lift and heal people exactly the way that Dale was describing. And what he's saying is, is so beautiful. And I just hope that people can listen to Dale and follow his lead so that we can all do a much better job of acting as healers in the ICU. We, we really need to, to recognize that the use of sedation is harmful for patients. We need to come into the ICU every single day and say that these medications are harming our patients' brains, they're harming our patients' bodies. We need to use the lowest dose for the shortest duration possible because these are harmful. You know, we need to recognize that the blood-brain barrier is not intact in most of our ICU patients, and these medications are affecting the brain in ways that aren't affecting the brain when you're having elective surgery done. You know, and we're using higher doses for much longer periods. So we need to recognize that these are harmful and use the smallest amounts for the shortest period possible. And we're not doing our patients favors by giving them more and more sedation to address their agitation. That's putting fuel on the fire. It's not helping our patients get better. No. Yeah, I think it's such a nice point that both of you guys have made that, you know, this is proven data and there's real things that we can do. And, and for some reason, I think that just gets lost so much in this discussion. And it's a lot easier for people to wrap their head around, you know, side effects of contrast or antibiotics or something like that. Um, but this is, uh, you know, so going to be so helpful for it. Let me add, let me add one more thing, Dale. I've never told you this before, but years ago, um, Pontopodon, look up these papers, put them in your, for your listeners. Hadabanad wrote a series of three articles on ARDS in the New England Journal of Medicine in the early 80s. And I got a chance to go meet Dr. Pantapadon at, uh, at, at MGH years later. And on the way back up, I reread them. I'd read them as a fellow. And they're beautiful papers in ARDS, but it, sh it reflects the earlier thinking of critical care where everything in Pantapadon's three-part series in the New England Journal was about the lung. And when I saw him, I said, Dr. Pantapadon, I reread your papers. And he goes, it's embarrassing. And I said, what do you mean? He, he had Parkinson's at the time. He's now passed away. And it was such an honor to meet him. But he said, you know, we only thought it was a lung disease. And we didn't know it was a whole body disease. And I was like, wow, that's so important for us to understand. Because this is an entire human being that we are caring for. And the bundle, the A2F bundle, the things that Dale is talking about with harming other people with sedation, that is what is going on. And if we can look at the entire person, and I have this little rule for myself, I make sure that I know people's hobbies, their favorite food, their pets' names, and their favorite music. And if I can know those four things about a human being, it's almost impossible 
for me to see them as a set of failing lungs or heart or kidneys because I have to see them as an entire person. And that makes me want to talk to that person. And if I want to talk to them, I've got to wake them up and I've got to be able to look them in the eyes, see them as a whole person and then get them out of the bed. And then that's when the family gets more engaged. And this restructures my entire way of approaching my job, my vocation as an intensivist. So I hope that that is a bit helpful to think through that. And really, post-intensive care syndrome was so important because we thought it was all about the lungs. And it's relatively rare that somebody is complaining about a lung problem months after their ICU stay. And this is why it's so confusing to patients, families, and, and pulmonologists and outpatient primary care people. They came in with a lung problem. They came out with weak muscles and anxiety, depression, uh, and cognitive impairment. And there aren't easy tests. You can't send off a lab test and diagnose those things. How could they come in with a lung problem and come out with other problems? And the other unique role that we have, for example, as leaders within um, ICUs, as, as physicians, is we need to advocate that OT, PT, speech-language pathology, uh, and psychology are not options. They're not bells and whistles. These are essential to how we care for our patients. And we have an obligation and a role within the healthcare system to say, this is how we deliver um, uh, critical care. These are standards of care that we need to insist are happening in our ICUs. And as medical directors of ICUs, we need to be, be advocating for this in order to provide the best possible care. I think we should title this episode "Picks Not All About the Lungs," like barely about doctors, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a good one. That's good. Um, no, that that's been so great of Wes and Dell for for you to talk about things. And you know, Dell, I've had the opportunity to work with you as a trainee, so I know how um, dedicated you are to um, try to do this on a day to day basis and really try to minimize sedation and get um, every um, specialty involved that we can. So I, I appreciate that. And Wes, I really like your you know, four things that you want to know about a patient. It's really looking at someone holistic. Um, I think from our conversation, um, and as first said, you know, this is more about the lungs. And I wanted to ask you though, too, Dell, from your you know experience clinically as well as from a research perspective, um, are there some aspects of PICS that you think resolve more readily than others, kind of in the in the post ICU care? I don't know that I can give a general answer to that across all patients. Uh, I think it, I think it's it depends on what they came into the ICU with, the care they got in the ICU, and what access they have to care after the ICU. How many patients of ours may not have access to robust rehab after the ICU, and not just physical rehab, but but cognitive rehab and and mental health support. I think that we have many patients that don't have access to that, or and and may go to a subacute rehab facility rather than a, uh, an acute care rehab facility, or may not have access at home or outpatient to, to even physical rehab, and likely don't have access to cognitive or, or psychological care. So I think that those things um, really are confounding our understanding about which things will get better or not get better. I think the easiest thing to measure is often muscle strength, right? Uh, every patient can, can have some understanding of their muscle strength, but likely can't self-assess their cognition or, or their um, mental health symptoms nearly as easily and, and often not as, as quantitative, as, in such a quantitative way. Uh, and also, it's, I think, harder for patients and families to understand what to do about their brain, whereas they may understand if I walk further, if I climb stairs more, then my muscles may get 
better. So I think it's kind of hard to have a general overall um, response to that. Thanks so much, Del. Um, and, and, and I can totally understand, you know, things can be different for, for different patients. And one more follow-up question, but are there any um, specific interventions that you'd want listeners to be um, just aware of today that have been helpful for patients um, with PICS? I was going to give two things to recommend uh, regarding the brain. So I, let's just focus on cognitive impairment. I, I love what Dale said earlier about the absence of a normal blood-brain barrier. These are patients who have an abnormal blood-brain barrier and they're getting injured. So we cannot get off this podcast without saying that benzodiazepines are uniformly the loser in randomized controlled trials that have any comparator. There have been over 30 randomized controlled trials of, get, of something opposed to a benzodiazepine and the benzos lose every time. So we need to teach our current provide, our current physicians, nurse teams, I, the whole ICU team, avoid benzodiazepines. Oh my gosh, they're so overused right now after COVID, it's crazy. Secondly, um, that, would, that would be a great start to help the brain not get so injured, I think, on the front end. But then on the back end, I want people to realize that the brain is beautifully neuroplastic. And we don't think that this actually times out. Months and years later, the brain can still be neuroplastic. And so thinking about uh, Carol Billion, one of my patients, she said, Dr. Ely, do you want me to tell you what I did to rebuild my brain? Yes, Carol, what did you do? I put myself on brain exercises. And what I did was, this is her talking, um, I put myself on 30 minutes of Sudoku and 30 minutes of Scrabble every day. And then I moved it to computerized number and word games. And I did that for 12 weeks. And by the end of it, I was back. So 10 to 12 week programs of cognitive rehabilitation, just like you would rebuild your bicep if it had been in a cast for six weeks or four weeks. This works for people and different degrees of success, but why not try? Well, this has been, you know, just an incredible last hour and so many good takeaway points for everyone to remember. We really appreciate your time and your sharing and your insights. We do know that we did not cover so many important aspects, right? We didn't talk about nearly enough about uh, delirium, which we'll have another episode on, effects of critical illness on family members and, and close relations of the patients. Uh, so much more that we're going to have to address. Let's um, go part B. Yeah, part B and C, D, E, and to F, maybe. <laughs> Uh, but to wrap up, we'd like to just sort of leave our learners with a final takeaway point from each of us. Uh, I'm going to take two. I, I love the bedside approach you mentioned early on and the neck up, neck down. These are the things that really matter to patients. Let's think about their cognitive ability, their psychiatric function, their uh, neurologic and muscle function from the neck down. Uh, and then the second, just the hammering home that point, there are randomized control trials. There's tons of data. There are guidelines out there things that we should be following just as adherently as we think about um, sort of other guidelines and data. Monty, what about you? Thanks, Farf. Yeah, I think I have, I mean, there's so many takeaway points from just this last, you know, almost hour that we've been together. But I'd like to take one from Wes and one from Dell. I think from Wes, I'm taking away, you know, PICS can um, affect, you know, as he said, on the lower range, up to 20% of patients, but on the higher range, up to 80% of patients. Um, so that's definitely impactful and something that we should be considering and um, the one takeaway point from Dell was that, you know, manifestations of PICS are not necessarily dependent on the severity of the acute illness that the patient experienced while hospitalized. So those are my two for today. Um, Dell, what about you? The head bone is connected to the body bone. We, we can't think about these things separately. We know that bed rest 
and sedation will make the brain worse. And if the brain's worse, then patients can't participate in physical rehab. These things are connected. We need to not think of them separately. Perfect. And Wes, um, what, what is your final takeaway point for today? I'm going to give you two points, but I'm going to, I'm going to start with a clarification. When you said that 20 to 80%, I want to repeat for the listener. What we're saying there is that in low risk people, about one in five in high risk people, as much as four out of five. So it's not just that there's a range of 20 to 80. It's that it's that low risk people aren't going to get this nearly as often. And that's why there's such a, you know, such a difference there. But my take homes will be, we didn't mention the Dr. Dre. I think it's a super fun and neat way of remembering the things you should do if your patient's delirious. D-D-R-E, Dr. Dre, like the rapper. So diseases, drug removal, and environment, D-D-R-E. If your patient is delirious, CAM positive or delirious on whatever scale you use, think about the diseases they have, sepsis, COPD, CHF, drugs that should be removed, and environmental things like eyeglasses, hearing aids, sleep-wake cycles, immobilization, and having the family at the bedside. And those are some really important aspects. And the last thing I'm going to say is remember, we're talking about an entire human being, and that means mind, body, and spirit. This is a spiritual problem as well. Sometimes when we threaten people's ability to communicate, they can't then tell us what's deeply important to them on a spiritual level. And so delirium not only strips them of the likelihood of getting mobilized or communicating with their loved ones, but it strips them of talking sometimes about the most important things in their life. And that really, to me, is completely wrong for us to do. So I, I work hard to get people through their delirium so that I can listen to what matters to them. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for, for clarifying the, uh, the point I mentioned, Wes, and for sharing that. Um, and Wes and Dell, thank you so much. Again, you're both true pioneers in this field. And, and Dave, or I, Dave and I are so appreciative of your time today. Uh, we do have another episode planned in the future about long COVID-19. And, and in that show, we'll discuss, you know, some overlap and differences between uh, long COVID as well as PICS. So stay tuned for that. Farf, any final words um, today from you? No, just thank you again for joining us. Keep your, uh, we'll sure we'll be reaching out when we're going to be talking about delirium and other thing, techniques to prevent this in the ICU. Uh, everyone, just make sure to listen to our next episode. We appreciate you tuning in. And uh, this episode was written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music is original music by Eric Rogers. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.